Dear friends, this is Evan Papp from Empathy Media Lab's podcast on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. Based within the Washington, D.C. Beltway, you can find us at empathymedialab.com. We are a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which is broadcasting working people's voices 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Check out our show and all the shows elevating the voice of working people throughout the world at laborradionetwork.org. It's part of our labor series that stretches from Pittsburgh to Chicago through Cleveland, Detroit, and Benton Harbor. I met with labor journalist Mike Elk in his hometown of Pittsburgh. Mike is founder of PaydayReport.com, which is a labor publication based in Pittsburgh that is elevating a national conversation about workers. In part two, we sit down with Mike Elk as he discusses his experience with unions and labor reporting and the future of labor organizing. I hope you enjoy. Well, everybody deserves a right to democracy, right? Uh, and everybody deserves a right to democracy on the job. Well, I come out of a big union family. Um, my family's been with the union um, and electrical workers for three generations. Uh, we fought the blacklisting. My great-uncle Herb was called before the House on american Activities Committee. Uh, my grandfather was forced out of his job at the VA. The FBI showed up at their home. In the late 1940s, during the Cold War, uh, the AFL and the CIO decided to merge together. The CIO was more left-leaning. Now, to make that deal, the CIO, Walter Ruther, the former president of the UAW, made a deal that they wouldn't include the left unions that wouldn't purge their communists. So there were 13 unions that got purged, including the United Electrical Workers. Out of those 13, only two of them exist today because of the infighting that occurred and because of the target that was put on the back of those 13 unions. My father's been with United Electrical Workers for 43 years. He's their elected director of organization. Uh, so all my life, I've, I've really been in the labor movement. Uh, and, you know, when I was about 15 or 16, I started writing about various protests I went to around town. And when I got into college, I wanted to write about it even more because, you know, I knew so many stories of big union fights. I spent all my life around union people coming and going, uh, people that were like family members that weren't even really family members. I went to Bucknell on a full scholarship. Uh, did I even really meet people that were anti-union? And that was a very shocking experience to me. They were mainly rich kids who thought, you know, union workers are so lazy. I mean, but then again, have you ever seen what, you know, most rich people do for a living? It's not terribly hard work sitting in an office uh, doing that kind of stuff uh, compared to, you know, uh, going out and uh, digging ditches or, uh, you know, tying rebar or picking crops in a field. Um, and they just thought, you know, this, these were lazy things that protected lazy people and that, you know, smart people could always rise to the top because that's what they've been taught. You know, without unions, uh, there is no voice on the job. There is no real democracy. Uh, you know, if you can get fired for any reason at all, you know, there's no guarantees. There's no system in place. People deserve to have some sort of structure, some sort of rules in place. Now, without a union, there aren't really enforceable rules. I mean, sure, people can say, oh, there's federal labor law. Yeah, good luck uh, spending two and a half years suing an employer. Good luck on that one. Not going to happen for the most part. There's some cases that it will happen, but for the most part, it's not going to happen. And without having enforceable union contracts and unions that have real teeth, uh, you're not really going to have rights on the job.
And so when it came time to, um, you know, figure out what I want to do, you know, I really wanted to go into reporting on worker struggles, uh, which isn't that easy to do in this country, apparently. Uh, when I started off on the labor beat more than a decade ago, when I was about 22, uh, John Nichols of The Nation used to sit with me on panels and joke, Mike Elk's the best labor reporter under the age of 35. He's the only one. And for some time that was true. We've recently seen a slight uptick in the number of, of online publications that are gearing, picking up labor reporters. But for a good chunk of my career, the beat was maybe about a dozen people. So, you know, I came out of a family that had those kind of traditions of fighting the blacklist and speaking truth to power. And in my own career, that's given me a great deal of strength uh, in terms of taking on the big issues that occur in terms of reporters not being paid well, reporters not being treated with respect. Uh, you know, I organized my first union when I was at In These Times magazine uh, back in 2013. Uh, then I went over to Politico and I started talking union as well. And I was illegally fired in the union drive there and I won $70,000. Uh, you know, I was heavily, heavily smeared uh, by Politico. Uh, which was unfortunate. Uh, everything from my own struggle with PTSD to wild rumors about my family. But what we got at Politico was, was we put up such a fight uh, that helped inspire some other folks in the midst of what was a growing movement of many different people. Uh, and we recruited some leaders out of that in various shops. And we helped raise awareness of some issues. And we showed really that if you got fired in a union drive, your union can go out and win $70,000. So the problem I had after I won that $70,000 was I couldn't find any work. Uh, and so a friend said to me, hey, you should just start your own little thing. You got money in the bank. People feel bad about what happened to you. You have a big social media following. You have, you know, 15,000 Twitter followers. You know, why don't you mine that and see what we can get? So in uh, March 2016, almost four years ago, I started Payday Report. Our first year in business, we made maybe $15,000 off of subscriptions. Our second year, we made about thirty-five, And now this year, or last year, we made about 60000 And it's sustainable small donors. Uh, and what we're writing is really geared towards people that are already in the labor movement, that are interested in union organizing. It's not so much about, you know, I think so often when the mainstream media covers labor stories, they just do like, like poverty porn. They just do what is the most shocking, horrific thing we can say about somebody's working conditions in a way that I think is almost humiliating to some of those people versus showing, hey, this is a worker that has power and agency over their lives. Uh, and I think in labor reporting, in the media in general, there's a huge class bias. Uh, most of the people I encounter don't come from union families. Now that we've seen, what is it, over 45 outlets unionized in the last four years, uh, the dialogue on that story has changed dramatically, but there's still a lot of catching up to do. There's still a lot of othering that I think a lot of reporters do where they don't really see folks from blue-collar backgrounds like they see themselves. You know, it's incredible. You see all these news organizations spending millions and millions of dollars to go around to the same press conferences in Iowa and New Hampshire that everybody else goes to, but you see the stories of everyday workers never told, unless it's in a diner on election year. And quite frankly, I don't know how many people really hang out in diners. <laughs> I certainly don't. With so many digital media workers organizing, that it's changed the way people write about unions. And a lot of people I know who are in the labor world, 
everybody has said this the last five years they've seen a, a big shift uh, but unionizing alone isn't enough to change the media we have to build our own systems and I fear that the Writers Guild and the News Guild the two primary unions representing media workers have no real strategy of how to do that there's still a lot of people that are very very invested in the idea that, oh, you know, like, look, the LA Times was just saved. Maybe that could be our paper. Nobody's coming to save the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette where they've seen a third, you know, they have a third of the staff that they had 15 years ago. Nobody's coming to save those papers. A lot of times those papers are just kept around to be kind of ad printing revenue cows that they just let workers go and as long as the ads keep coming in and they do the bare minimum to make a, you know, a little tiny profit if they can. I've spent now the last six and a half years on and off, including living there for a stint, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And, you know, what I saw there was horrific. It's a different culture when it comes to unions. And there's a lot of growth happening right now in the auto industry. Uh, but if you look at Volkswagen in Chattanooga, Tennessee, they're, they're paying workers starting salary as temps, $13 an hour, no health care. Building Volkswagen Passats, sell for a pretty penny. Well, you know, people get together, they sign cards, they start talking to one another, uh, they figure out a way to organize, and they move towards getting a union. And what typically happens is the company starts intimidating. And um, the workers have been trying to organize there for about a decade now. They face fierce, fierce resistance. They lost by about 43 votes in um, 2014. And then this last time around, they lost by 29 votes. And in each instance, the threats of plant closings and other things came up. And so, you know, a, a union drive is, is an intense, intense thing where people overcome a sense of fear. Uh, they, they gain a new sense of themselves. And they gain a new sense of who they are when they act in conjunction with others. Uh, and I think in Chattanooga, they're very, very close to a union election, but they still have a long way to go to win. We've seen a, a dramatic increase in strikes, largest amount of strikes in about two decades. Uh, I was certainly out there in West Virginia and Oklahoma, Arizona, uh, Kentucky, North Carolina, other places during that big strike wave. And what you saw was these group of people who've been really vilified teachers all of a sudden had the momentum to keep moving forward. And they kept doing it. And it turned out that the support for teachers was much stronger than anybody expected. Just like how in digital media unions, the support was much stronger. It always has been strong. A bunch of Google contractors, about 200 of them here, voted to unionize. Uh, and that was a huge victory. It was the first time any workers employed by Google had ever unionized. Uh, so there's growing, growing momentum in those worlds. And I think it's going to spread for the same reasons it spread in the digital unionization movement, which is the ability of people to broadcast what they're doing personally to build unions. And I saw this during the teacher strikes. Teachers could post a photo of themselves on a picket line and get hundreds of likes in real time. So they knew they had deep community support. We have two-way versions of communication now. And I think those communications are encouraging people to organize because they're seeing so much more how people do it than they did in the past. Now, that doesn't mean that social media is a panacea. It doesn't mean that we don't need labor force. We certainly do. 
up, but social media is giving new, more momentum and more energy to some of these fights. I certainly think some of the highlights were the way teachers consolidated strength this year. After the strikes, you just saw teachers unions help propel uh, kicking the, you know, the Republican governor out of Kentucky. Um, certainly we covered uh, the union defeat in Chattanooga, Volkswagen, where they lost by 29 votes. We were out there doing the GM strike, which was complicated. As well, we've covered a lot of other stories. Uh, we're going to be doing a lot of work on um, the growing role of Latino labor leaders in this country um, in terms of how they're influencing the rest of the movement. I think we're going to be looking much broader at, at the problems of some in organized labor and the Green New Deal. There's a lot of people in organized labor that are really tied to these old fossil fuel driven industries that are really opposed to the Green New Deal. Even the Green New Deal promises a just transition where people will have you know, five years to get a new job and has, you know, gives priority to people getting jobs in the green industries. You, you need information about organizing because people won't organize unless they know how to do it, unless they see other people doing it. Uh, unless they have some sense of confidence, some sense that they can win too. And that's why labor reporting is so important. You know, we spend all this time traveling around chasing down these 2020 candidates when we should be spending a lot more time writing about folks in our own communities that are trying to overcome very adverse working conditions. Now I think we're seeing a new generation of people that are willing to show leadership, particularly you know, my generation, which suffered through the Great Recession. You know, we were sold the biggest bill of goods in human history, take all this student debt, uh, go find work, freelance, or be an independent contractor, or, or, or gig, or, you know, we're not going to give you a, a real job, but, you know, we'll pay you enough that you can sort of keep your lights on and put food on the table, and, oh, maybe you have to drive Uber or Lyft at night, but, you know, we were down to that, you know, we're down to that point of rationing and, and bargaining, um, that... I think people are just so fed up right now. Bernie's been a champ for labor for decades, and he's really set the standard for Democratic candidates in terms of how to use your campaign to support unions. I mean, he's using mass texts and emails to turn people out for picket lines. That's not something we've really seen Democratic candidates do before. So Bernie is really challenging the rest of the field to be much better on the issue. People, they can't take it anymore. And they're inspired by so many actions of, of teachers, of other groups of workers that have taken matters into their own hands. And I think what you saw in the digital media unionization movement was a reflection of that, of people that are out every day that are learning about things through their reporting and then changing them. Uh, and I think you're going to see a big ripple effect from that for a long time. But the question is, when do we really start using our power to no longer be so tied into the corporate media, but to build our own systems. And, and that's the big question. Now the man that fights for honor, none can blame him. May luck attend wherever he may roam. And no son of his will ever live to shame him. Whilst liberty If you like what you hear, hit the like button, leave a review, and subscribe to hear future episodes. 
And you can find us at empathymedialab.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Patreon at Empathy Media Lab. Stay well, everyone, and educate yourself, organize, and mobilize to fight the power and create a brighter future.